thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Curran, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. Well, it is wonderful to be with you again here on Wow Whispering, and I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today. As you know, this is Diane A. Kern, and we are going to be chatting about something that is full of surprises, full of all kinds of unexpected. What we're going to be talking about, I'll share with you in a moment, but let me say hello to my guest, Eric Bruhl. How are you? I'm going to tell you a little bit about Eric in just a moment, but I just want to find out how are you doing today? Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you, Diane? Great to be here. Um, it's a real pleasure and honor, actually, to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for asking me to uh, join you today. Thank you. And we are sharing Los Angeles today. That's where we both are. So we're both in the, the, the sunny, well, I'm looking out my window, semi-sunny climbs of Los Angeles today. I'm sure it'll get sunnier as the day goes on. So Eric, I want to share a little bit about a man who really does cover the world. Los Angeles is just one of the places he hangs out. He <laughs> is uh, currently the manager for the Docent program at the J. Paul Getty Museum's Education Department. He was born in Lima, Peru to a German father and a Peruvian mother. And so he comes by his, his world traveler status naturally. He grew up in Michigan before moving to Los Angeles to pursue an advanced degree in Roman archeology. span He fell in love with LA, not hard to do, and eventually went to work at the Getty Museum. He's a traveler and a soccer fanatic who visits Germany at least once a year to see his team and Help me out, Eric, if I don't pronounce this correctly. It's uh, Bayer Leverkusen. Is that correct? Perfect. Yay. Okay. And he goes to watch them play a couple of matches. From his love arose the podcast that he and his friends affectionately call the Neverkusen podcast because Leverkusen never win anything. Oh my gosh, I'm a man after my true heart. You gotta love the underdog, right? <laughs> so when he's not watching soccer, you're gonna find him having a beer in the sun. He is a relaxed sort of guy. Uh, Eric, so let me ask you something. This team, how in the heck did you get connected with this team in Germany? Um, yes, uh, thanks, Diane. And uh, I, th 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 there's an expression in Germany that you don't pick your team; your team picks you, um, which just basically means you know you're a young person, uh, early teens, and you're looking for something to latch onto, and you, you know, uh, whether it's sports, music, what have you, uh, certain certain teams, certain musicians, certain artists, what, uh, you know, what have you, um, pick you. And Bayer Leverkusen in 1988, when I was 13 years old, had just won uh, an important competition in Germany. And wow. it was when I started reading the German newspapers and when I started paying attention to soccer in general. And so it was just the case that, you know, here is this 
what seemed to me to be a victorious team. They had a um, they had a player on the uh, they had a player on their team who was from South Korea, and he was the only Asian player in the German league at that time, which stood out to me as someone who's mm-hmm. um, you know half German, half Peruvian. And uh, yeah, I think that just basically developed into a love, um, you know, many, many now 30 years later, actually. And uh, um, yeah, it just, it was just by happenstance, so to speak. But at the same time, obviously, my German roots played a part in it. I was looking for a team to latch onto in Germany. And that's the one that presented itself. Well, I really resonate with what you just said, Eric, because I was born in Boston myself. And became a rabid Red Sox fan and they were famous for losing everything, but you had to be a fan because you just had to be a fan and they had the best place to go watch baseball. They had, and they still have um, the uh, field that is um, really, there's no bad seat in there. What I mean to say is even when you're in the bleachers, way the heck in the back, you can still see what's going on. And now you have all these amazing Fenway, fans, you know, in Fenway Park, that just, there's something about the connection with each other that gets you through the horrible times when the team is blowing it. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I I have to say though, Boston right now has no reason to complain with the Patriots, with the Red Sox, um, even with the Bruins, uh, and you can argue the Celtics are coming back. Um, right now, you guys are, it's really the number one sports city in the U.S. without question. It's, it's kind of scary, actually, because I grew up when the Celtics were always great and the Bruins were always feisty. And there was a certain point when I was in my early 20s that the Bruins were like in, undefeatable. Yeah. But those Red Sox, they hung on in the <laughs> cellar for decade after decade after decade. And yet you had your favorite players no matter what. And then when they finally started winning, it was like, wait a minute, is, can, is this right? Is the curse gone? <laughs> <laughs> and the curse, of course, was Babe Ruth's curse for being traded, blah, blah, sure. blah. So, so here's what I, what I also love is that you've chosen a sport that uh, was not, um, I'm gonna say, running the, running the field in uh, America when I was growing up and soccer was something that was very European, was very rest of the world. So when you were growing up there in Michigan, was it already popular? Was Had it already kind of turned that corner and suddenly now it's like everybody plays soccer when they're growing up? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, obviously, my love of the sport came from my parents um, per, uh, in Peru and Germany. That's, you know, that that's the national sport, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, we and growing up, we didn't move to Michigan until I was about eight years old. Um, so I grew up in Peru and then lived in Guatemala for a little while and then in Austria as well. And during that time, um, obviously, you know, here in America, kids as they're growing up get, you know, get a ball thrown to them and they have to catch it. But if you grow up in other parts of the world, you get a ball thrown to you and you do something with your feet with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do not catch it. <laughs> exactly. You don't touch it with your hands. And um yeah, well, once we moved to Michigan, uh my father worked for Dow Chemical. Um, they are the ones who actually sponsored him coming uh, from Germany to the U.S. at an early age. I think he was 26 years old when it happened. 
And so he went, uh, he worked for them and uh, their headquarters, they were based in Midland, Michigan. And because Dow Chemical was this um, international company or is this international company, and you can, for better, for worse, um, my affiliation with Dow Chemical and Bayer Pharmaceuticals is always a little bit, uh, <laughs> I always have to, I always have to kind of, um, well, you know, consider that uh, because they're not necessarily the best, greatest companies uh, in some of the things that they do. But um, at any rate, I'm getting off the topic. Uh, in Midland, the headquarters uh, of Dow Chemical, because it was such an international company, there were a lot of employees who, um, you know, raised families there. And um, the soccer club there was really prominent, one of the bigger ones in the state of Michigan and probably in the U.S. And so even growing up at, uh, at 10 years of age, we had uh, 18 fields throughout the um, yeah throughout the city, a small city of 30,000 people. You had 18, wow. 20 fields, something like that, and organized games throughout. And um, yeah, so it was a very, even though you wouldn't expect it necessarily from mid-Michigan, it was actually a very pro soccer um, place to grow up in and a lot and and it is something that yes American kids um, generally you know that's one of the first sports that they start when they go into playing sports and maybe they drift off into baseball or football or something like that um, but in Midland you had you had kids who that's exactly what they excelled in and always knew they would and you know for some folks who are tuning in and saying, okay, so why are you talking about sports on Wow Whispering Diane? I'll tell you why. Because sports are full of the unexpected, the, uh, the thing that you can't prepare for, even though people who are athletes are really devoted to practice, 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 so they can deal with the unexpected when it happens in a game, because there is always the unexpected from the other team. Now, sports fans, <laughs> are thrive on the unexpected and sometimes they live and die by it. I'm going to give you an example again from baseball. I was at um, a friend's house recently uh, and one of their, um, their daughter was getting married and their son was there and we were watching TV because it was like the reception and all the rest of it. So we're watching TV and there was a no hitter going on with the uh, Dodgers, right? The, the, last, the LA Dodgers. And it was apparently a new pitcher. I am, I am confess, I'm a Boston person. I don't necessarily know all the LA people. I should probably keep that quiet in LA if I want to walk outside. But nonetheless, here was this new pitcher who was, who was throwing a no-hitter, right? And it was getting down to the last little bit of the game. And so uh, their son, who was in his 30s, was watching this game. And everybody else was kind of sort of watching it on TV. And all of a sudden they were like, I think on the second out of the last inning and this batter came up and hit the ball and got on base. And this 30 year old man literally fell out of his chair onto the floor. <laughs> it was just so shocking and so upsetting and so disappointing and so emotional all at once. And I thought, I had kind of missed us. What happened? And he sort of looked at me like, you weren't watching? <laughs> But what I love is the, is the, I'm going to say, the devotion that fans have to their team. So that's why I wanted to talk with you, Eric, because your devotion to your team resulted in this podcast. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm wowing myself over here just about that, that you took it to a level that is really extraordinary. So I want to hear about the inspiration and kind of what the experience has been to become, in many ways, a voice 
for your team? It's um, it's an excellent question, and it I think goes much deeper than that actually for um, for me and uh, for my compatriots who are on the podcast. Um, it was actually a love of this team and um, wanting to participate in some fashion that actually drove me to Twitter in 2011. Uh, I don't do Facebook. I, I never really have. Um, but uh, Twitter, for whatever reason, was um, seems like something attractive to me uh, at first as a news source and then to connect with people. Um, and I actually think of tend to think of Twitter because I grew up in the uh, 80s when we were sending letters to pen pals in different countries and continents. Um, Twitter is just basically pen pals uh, with a quicker response time, um, <laughs> which, is, which, which is fantastic. And so in 2011, I got on Twitter and I started looking for anybody or anything that would help me be a little bit closer to this team, Bayer Leverkusen, who were you know, on the continent of Europe in Germany. Uh, where I was in the U.S. And uh, you quickly meet people on Twitter who have, share similar interests. And one of the people I met had a blog. His name is Patrick. Um, he had a blog that he was writing about this team in both um, English and Spanish. And um, those are both languages I know. So I was a ardent follower. And at one point I wanted to get a little more involved and just sent him an email asking, you know, Hey, can I help you out with the uh, blog and, um, you know, writing articles. And he said, sure, please do. And we did a couple of articles together and realized uh, at a certain point that writing is very difficult and time consuming. And uh, at that time, end of 2011, podcasts were kind of beginning to, not beginning to rear their head, they already had, but they were becoming a little more widespread. And Patrick suggested, you know, why don't we do a podcast? Um, let's get a couple more people. Why don't we do a podcast instead of writing these uh, blog articles? It'll be faster, cleaner, easier. And, um, and it'll be a good time to talk with people uh, in, in real time about this team. And so we um, decided, yeah, we're going to do that. And we uh, used Twitter to find a couple of other um, participants. Uh, my friend Tom, who lives in Bonn, Germany, and uh, our friend Frida, who lives in Bremen now. Um, in Germany, two Germans. Patrick's also German, but he lives, he's German-Argentinian, so he has similar background to what I have. Um, he lives in Singapore. So we had, you know, someone in LA, oh, wow. someone in Singapore, and um, two people in Germany. And we started uh, started this podcast um, to talk about Bayer Leverkusen. And it really became for us a kind of therapy, if you will, because like I said, they never <laughs> win anything. So it's a constant, you know, it is, as you said, rooting for the underdog. And it's, it's a constant frustration to know that you're not necessarily going to win or that you're always the underdog. Uh, and so our podcast became a good form of therapy for the four of us. And for the first <laughs> um, several years, we were yeah, we did it week in, week out. Um, the German teams play every week, just like any sport, basically. Um, and uh, really, you know, because we did it in English, Patrick insisted that we did it, do it in English because um, although we could have done it in German, all of us speak German, and it probably would have more followers if we do did do it in German. Patrick was insistent that we do it in English because he really wants to take this, he wants to spread the team's 
the reputation of the team and the team in general to other parts of the world. Um, and it's not because of the fact that uh, Bayer Leverkusen belongs to the uh, Bayer Corporation. It's not a very popular team in Germany. Um, Germans have uh, a problem with the most uh, the vast majority of German professional teams are owned by um, technically like shareholders, kind of like the Packers um, are mm -hmm. publicly owned. Uh, the vast majority of German teams are publicly owned. Um, uh, Bayer Leverkusen is one of the few teams that is basically owned by a corporation. And so they're kind of looked down upon uh, in a lot of ways and uh, in Germany. And that's why Patrick thought, you know, it's, it's important that we kind of take take this team worldwide a little bit as much as we can to um you know to, so that the reputation uh, yes it's a giant pharmaceutical company but by the same token it's just a soccer team for pete's sake you know um if, if you fall in love with them that's that's just the way it is he was sharing with me that this team has been around for a very long time since 1904 and it sounded like how it arose was not some decision by the Bayer Corporation to buy an existing team. How did it actually come about, even though it's part of a, we'll say, well, it's a privately owned club? How did, how did things uh, begin? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question because I think actually um, all the disparaging comments or commentary about Bayer Leverkusen uh, in Germany misses that point. I, this was a, this has been a giant pharmaceutical company and a giant company in Germany and the rest of the world for a long time. And in 1904, the factory workers um, there wanted to start a football club. Um, it's not uncommon. You know, you have a company, you have a massive company back in that day and age, and um, they're looking for interests outside of the work period. And uh, the company and the workers asked the company, would you sponsor a football team if we played? And the Bayer Leverkusen nickname for the team is the VAXF, um, which literally translates to the Factory 11. And that is the uh, in reference to the factory, um, the pharmaceutical factory in which these original workers worked and the 11 players that stand on a soccer field. Um, and it's something that was used against Bayer Leverkusen for the longest time. Like I said, uh, their image in Germany isn't great, but it's also something that the team then in the 2000s began kind of co-opting to um, actually show pride in like, yes, we are the factory 11 and yes, our origins stand, you know, stem from this um, giant corporation, but it was the workers of that corporation um, from whom it stemmed. So um, it, it, it's always, it's always something kind of where uh, the blue collar kind of wins out in German football or German soccer over, uh, over, over the white collar. And, and that's something that I think uh, Bayer Leverkusen has tried in the past decade to really uh, emphasize. You know, as somebody who studies, is a student of and a, a masterful person in the world of archaeology, I always think of people who want to get to the root of how did something get created? How did that get started? I love that you told that story. And along the way, you mentioned something else that I find intriguing, which is the, the sort of um, going back and forth between describing this game as soccer and describing it as football. And of course, in this country, that's so confusing to Americans because we have this idea that football looks a certain way and is a certain way because we have the NFL and we have a whole system of kids learning that game called football, which we then distinguish from soccer. So it's interesting to hear the sort of back and forth of the same 
word? Do, do, is the word football the same as the word soccer in Germany? And I'm just trying to get to the root of the distinction of the word. Yeah, actually, um, and, and there is a clear distinction uh, between the two words. Uh, it's known as football, obviously, or some variation thereof um, throughout the rest of the world. And football here, uh, which we think of as American football, um, you know, the foot rarely touches the ball in American football <laughs> outside of the kicker. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you're not even allowed to kick the ball. It's a rule in American football that you can't kick the ball, which is somewhat ironic. Um, one of uh, one of my podcast mates, Tom, who lives in Germany, he he calls American football based on the shape of the actual ball. He calls the sport hand egg. He thinks that's more appropriate <laughs> than um, football. Uh, I think and, uh, it is. I, yeah. I would love to see that change. And you know, it's interesting because soccer, as we call it here, is becoming more and more and more popular, but we just have that languaging. Does, is the word soccer used elsewhere in the world or just not at all? Not really. Um, it's primarily in the U.S. It's actually an English word, and soccer comes from, um, interestingly enough, it actually comes from the um, term association football. Um, back when um, there were two types of back when there were two types of football, and it was basically the soccer we know now and rugby. In order yes. to distinguish them soccer was known as association football. And it's from that SOC in the word association that we get uh -huh. the word soccer. And the English initiated that terminology, but then stopped using it. But it, it kept on in the US because we had already, um, at that <laughs> point in the early 1900s, had American football. So um, association football here in the US became soccer. And it, yeah, it, like I said, it, it's primarily a term that is used in America, um, Canada as well. You know, English speaking countries are definitely aware of it. All countries are aware of it, but um, really it's just the, primarily the US, Canada that really refer to it in that regard. Because sometimes there are ways in which sports just easily brings us together. And sometimes we have to jump through a few little hoops to get the culture and the, the, the languaging and the way that a sport is described and the rules that it has and the particulars of how it's structured. I love that idea of, what is it called? Uh, hand, what was the name? That you hand egg. <laughs> hand egg, I love it. So I know. <laughs> I'm going to have to now consider hand egg as a way <laughs> to distinguish this when I'm talking with someone from Europe. <laughs> but what I find, no matter what the sport is, no matter what the country is, is what you've been describing is this kind of deep-seated love for a team. Now, a team isn't just a set of players who, you know, were alive in 1904 and then we just remember them. There are new players that come along and develop and and grow up and you still love the team and the team has players that come and go, but the team's identity becomes something that really people, well, you could say they attach themselves to. Yeah. And I'm intrigued with, for me, that's a wow, because this idea of something is bigger even than the individuals at a given moment in time. Yes. There's some kind of throughput that goes in this case uh, over a hundred years that this team has been in existence. And I'm wondering, as you see uh, the connection, are there new fans that are developing all the time? That's something clearly your podcast is, is making available to people who don't even live in Germany, don't even speak German, but they could tune into 
what you're excited about this team and attach themselves through your podcast. It's an interesting choice you've made, an interesting kind of devotion you've expressed. Yeah, and that's, I think that's exactly, you've crystallized it actually, what kind of was the intent, Patrick's intent um, initially, because I have to give credit where credit is due, um, behind what our podcast does, which is trying to bring in a larger following um, that, because in Germany, if you support a football, a soccer team, I'm just going to use football now and uh, hopefully your Go listeners will understand, yes, <laughs> that I'm referring to soccer. But if you support a football team in Germany, you also generally tend to support, because of its location, the region. Um, so these are very regional um, loyalties that uh, often enact themselves in Germany. And we're trying with our podcast a little bit to broaden that, if you will, that you can, uh, well, you know, I love the fact that in Germany, you have these fans who, you know, this is where I was born, this is where I'm from, so this is why I'm a fan. Great, but we have fans uh, outside of Germany and around the world who can't identify quite that way, so you have to get them to identify with the team, and it is the case that um, individual players come and go, and there are some legends um, for the team that everybody will recognize, or any fan of the team would recognize and always appreciate, but it is larger than any one individual player. It is a, a history and because some of the teams in Germany um, are extremely old, Hamburg, for example, I believe their team uh, originated in 1887. So, you know, even 20 some year 20 some years um, prior to Bayer Leverkusen all of these teams have a real kind of uh, tradition to them and um, fans who have been with them you know from birth to death and uh, it's 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 a loyalty uh, in Germany that we would like to disseminate uh, even further out into the world if possible it seems as though the opportunity for what we think of as connecting to people who are living in a different part of the world and living different lives than us gives us a commonality. And sports has this beauty. Even if you don't know the language, you can watch what's happening in the game and you can follow it. You can get a sense of where people are going, what they're doing. And you may have to familiarize yourself a little bit with the rules so you know what's kosher and what's not. But this idea that you can see what's happening on a field and you can get excited. I know I used to watch um, games that I didn't understand. When I did not know anything about hockey, I thought, boy, these people are really working hard. They're really moving around and something amazing is happening. Oh, there goes this little tiny puck into a giant net and everybody's yelling yay or, or boo. <laughs> so this excitement that human beings love to have is what gets shared. You are surrounded by and involved with something that is naturally exciting. There's something about it. I'll bet you when you go to a game, whether they win or lose, you've been excited during it, right? No question. And uh, it, it's funny you mentioned hockey. Hockey, I love hockey. Um, having been raised in Michigan, me, I was a big Red Wings fan. And um, in my 20s during the 90s when they were winning everything left and right. So I, I, I've... <laughs> 
hockey has my utmost respect because I do think that's probably the most difficult of all sports. Um, and as you say, sports is something that brings people together. It's It can also be something, I mean, I think you see it in today's NFL with the protests against police brutality that are being, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are being acknowledged during the anthem. That's, that's a very divisive issue. So as much as sports can bring people together, it can also divide them. But I think that's indicative of how important sports is um, in our in just as, as human beings um, to a large extent. And uh, as a Roman archaeologist, I'm going to go back to the idea, you know, that bread and circuses was the um, emperor's, uh, was always the emperor's maxim as to how you control the people. You give them food, you give them entertainment, and they'll be quiet. And um, to some extent, that's very true. And because human beings do enjoy entertainment, and sports is one of those um, pieces of entertainment that, uh, that that have been popular from the beginning. Um, but it does bring people together. I mean, without this, um, without this podcast, without this love for Bayer Leverkusen, I would have never met the um, people I podcast with. And Patrick, like I said, who lives in Singapore, um, we had been talking to one another almost on a weekly basis since 2011 and met for the first time um, in December of 2017, so about eight months ago, uh, when he got married and I went to his wedding and his bachelor party. And that was our, you know, that was our first time that we had met one another. And he's just as wonderful in real life as uh, he is on the podcast. And Tom and Frida, who live in Germany, I met much earlier because I'm constantly in Germany. But those are two friends that I made in 2011 that I now count as some of my best friends um, that I have, you know, count among the people who whom I've known since I was a young, young child, and I've only known them for seven years. So um, it's, you know, it, it is partly this team, it's social media, it's the ease with which you can get your voice out there and the ease with which you can connect with people who have, um, who have the similar, same interests, similar interests. And, you know, it, 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 it is, it is good. It is bad. Um, I tend to fall on the side that it is good if, if you know, if if you make these connections um, with people outside of what you're used to. That's just a fantastic thing. And so I'm very much grateful to Bayer Leverkusen not only for giving me a team to root for uh, per se, but also to really expanding my horizons, so to speak, and introducing me to a bunch of new people. Every time I go back and watch the team, I meet new fans um, who are familiar with us through our podcast or through Twitter, and it's 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 absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's it's not something 20 years ago, 10 years ago that necessarily you could have um, done as easily as you can now. It's really remarkable. And so when I asked Eric to share what he considered a wow, I love that you wrote one word, Twitter. (laughs) Most people have like a sentence. I thought, I get that because Twitter is literally a word that now means something to people. And it doesn't just mean, oh, here's what they do online. It means here's an experience you can have. And you just described beautifully the experience of Twitter and how it supported your love of something that now has you connected to people that you otherwise wouldn't be connected to. I, I went online to take a look at the uh, Never Cousin podcast uh, uh, page on Twitter, which is at Never Cousin podcast. And I can see that the individual tweets are short, sweet, and to the point. And what I love is they <laughs> capture the moment. 
you know, there, it, it's not explaining something so you understand it conceptually. It's sharing something that is being experienced and now you get to experience it together. Yes, that's wonderfully put, Diane. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. And that is, a, it is in it is in the moment. And I'm slightly embarrassed that <laughs> you look through our timeline because I know I've wrote a couple of those tweets. And uh, let let me just put it this way: we get passionate when we watch the games, and when we're not doing well, um, some of our tweets are perhaps less than complimentary uh, to the team. <laughs> but that's you know part of being a fan. But you're right; it is it is it is not something where you necessarily can provide a context and um, someone chiming in you know, a couple of days later can understand what was being said. You have to kind of be in the moment at that time. And, um, and, and, and I think that's very impactful. It can be very impactful. And that's the beauty of Twitter. Um, there, there are a lot of things wrong with Twitter. Um, you just have to read the news to, uh, to sure. see that. But um, the, the, the connections it allows you to establish in real time and in the yeah in the moment um, are are really powerful ones in my opinion it's it is basically just you know for those people listening who may have used like MSN Messenger back in the day or something like that where you can begin chatting with a larger group of people around the world this is you know Twitter is basically that tenfold um, brought to its logical conclusion and it still has some problems but. Um, I, I absolutely love the platform in that um, I, I know I know whatever is going on in Germany at any given time for the most part. I know whatever is going on back in my home state of Michigan, and that's because I choose to follow certain uh, Twitter feeds that allow you to, you know, that update you pretty regularly. And um, that's as someone who's kind of a news junkie as well. That's uh, that's where I see the real advantage of Twitter. You bring something to mind, Eric. I remember when I was um, first working in advertising at, uh, at age 22. At 23, it was time for a vacation. I thought, okay, <laughs> I have to go somewhere that's not this country. I'm gonna, uh, and I never expected to go to Ireland, but nonetheless, I went there. And I rented a car, and I drove around to bed and breakfast. Well, it was mind-blowing in the true sense of the word, and I thought, you know, if, if I were in charge of the world, I would require that everybody go and visit another country because oh, it's just, it's going to make you see that not everybody has the same experience you do, not everybody thinks the same way you do. Even if you share a language, it, there's a different orientation toward how the world is and what you notice about it and conversation. And we really learn from being somewhere where our point of view is not the prevailing point of view. You are participating in that way with multiple points of view. And some of them are to do with your team and some of them are to do with just being connected to communities that are not the one you live in now. So Eric, you are reminding, I think us, as we listen, as we kind of have this conversation today, all of us, that stepping outside what you already know is a very, I'm gonna say, fulfilling and expansive way to choose to live. And we have such easy tools to do it now. You don't have to get on a plane or ride a horse or, you know, canoe across an ocean to find a new point of view. You can simply hop online and discover new points of view and learn something that you wouldn't learn in daily conversation. 
That's so true. And Diane, you couldn't have said it better. Um, we really have a connection here because some of the things you've said have gone through my mind countless number of times, but this idea of being in charge and requiring everybody to visit a foreign country, that would be my absolute <laughs> first law if I were, uh, you know, if I were ever put in charge. I think it is so that that is such a, it makes such an impact just to see exactly as you said that um, we are similar. We are all similar, but you know, we all have different traditions. We all have different uh, ways that we live our lives. And um, stepping outside of yourself is the best thing you can do. Uh, I, I think back um, in 1999, I was excavating in Israel, and I uh, had a an excavation in Turkey lined up after that. And there was this week long period between the two excavations when I had time to or two week long period where I had time to travel to other countries um, on my way to Turkey. And I went to Syria. This is 1999. Our relationship with Syria at that time wasn't necessarily overly aggressive. Um, so it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't difficult to get into the country. You were not um, in danger at that moment. No, and and okay. I think and I think that's I think for the most part that's a, a generally what people tend to um, tend. I, I know my girlfriend at the time was very worried about me, but um, the reality was, you know, the governments were kind of facing off against one another. But on the ground floor, when you're there in Syria mm -hmm. with the people, they don't care. And some of the best conversations I had there were with um, Syrians who spoke no English and I spoke no Arabic. And we basically communicated through hand signals, facial expressions, kind gestures. And um, it, it was, I, I spent a week there and it was one of my, um, I think most important informative uh, journeys that I've ever taken. And especially now when you think about, um, I went to all the major sites, Palmyra um, and cities uh, in Syria. And when you see what Syria looks like now, all of those places have been basically reduced to rubble. They really technically don't exist anymore. And that's, um, that's part of being a, a, a traveler too. That's part of making those connections. I consider myself incredibly fortunate that I decided to do that in 1999. Um, yeah. I'm sure that some of the people I met during those travels um, are, you know, are in a lot worse shape than they were at that time at this point. And, you know, that's part of being a human in today's day and age or any day and age. But um, it's it's true. It, it, it It's something that resonates um, with you. I, you know, this trip was 20 years ago. But um, when I see pictures of Syria today, I think back to 20 years ago. And I know that the Syrians that I met are fantastic people and that nobody deserves that kind of um, what's happening there now. And it just it makes you more empathetic. Um, it just makes you a better person to be able to travel. And I know that's not necessarily in something that's um, available to everybody, but um, you know, whatever traveling you can do, whatever you can do to get outside of your comfort zone, just I, th I think it's clear, makes you a better person, makes you, makes you a better human being. That's how we evolve. Well, Eric, you've done something that is rather remarkable. You've drawn a beautiful line that connects sports and archaeology. And you've done it in a way, excuse me, the, the frog in my throat that likes to show up while I'm recording has now arrived. I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm going to have to name this frog and make him a, a special guest. So uh, what I want to say is that in drawing a connection between sports and archaeology, what you've done is you've done it through um, sharing with our listeners today 
your experiences in both arenas that gave you an opening to people and the way that we can communicate with each other and the way we can appreciate each other in vastly different circumstances with even vastly different focuses or orientations or cultures or interests, whether it's in the world of sports, which we tend to think of, unless we are a professional uh, sports player, we tend to think of as entertainment or recreation. In the world of archeology, span we tend to think of that as something that not everybody's involved with, but people who are very serious about getting to the root of information that would explain mm -hmm. our past and hopefully give us uh, uh, some insights about our future. But all of this has to do with connecting with people in a really amazing way. So thank you for doing, doing something very original and creative which just tells me a lot about your mindset, which is that you are able to create connections where someone else might not, not even see them, Eric. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I, 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 do think the, I do think one of the most important, one of my favorite characteristics about myself, not to pat myself on the back, but is that openness and wanting to, and I, I thank my parents for that, obviously, um, coming from the background, immigrant background that I did, um, you know, uh, growing up in the summers, we would, uh, you know, you'd go to, I'd go to school in Michigan during the school year. And then in the summer, we'd either go to Peru or we'd go to Germany for a month in order to visit all of the relatives as you're kind of expected to do. And that had a massive uh, effect on me. And I thank my parents for that um, greatly. Also for the fact that they uh, both made me speak um, their native languages with them. My sister and I had growing up had to speak to my father in German and to my mother in Spanish. Otherwise they wouldn't respond back to us even though they spoke fluent English. It was their uh, insistence that we learn their native tongues. And at the time that's the most, you know, if you're a teenager and you have to talk to you know, in German to your dad and then in Spanish to your mom, it's just annoying. And you, you're just like, I don't even understand why you're making us do this. We live in America and it's not too <laughs> long, too much longer after that, that you realize, thank God, that's the greatest gift you've like given us basically. Oh, that's brilliant. You're not just bilingual, you're tri trilingual. Yeah, yeah, and my my father, who speaks, um, he speaks he speaks basically almost all the Western European languages. Um, uh, he's yeah, he, he's he's adamant and a, always a big proponent about the more languages you know. It's it's like you said, it's like visiting a country. The more you know about a person's language, the more you know about those people. Well, something I I am not fluent in anything other than English. I think I'm reasonably fluent in English, but nonetheless, I had exposure as a little kid in grammar school to what was called a, an experiment in conversational French. So uh, a group of us were taught conversational French. We did not write it, we didn't learn it the traditional way, but we were exposed early enough that something happened to my brain and I'm so happy it did, which is you realize that people think a little differently in different languages because they have mm -hmm. different words available to them. They have different idiomatic expressions, I learned that, and they have different ways of describing the same thing. So I remember as a little kid realizing that French was fascinating because they, they name the different floors of a house differently. The premier étage is not the same thing as the first floor in, a, in an American house. And I thought, oh my gosh. So right off the bat, we're looking at the same thing in this house and we're using different words to describe it. We're seeing it differently. We're experiencing yeah. differently. And I thought it just gets more amazing from there. So there were certain 
things that are not really literally translatable. You have to go around a circle. And I remember, I'm just going to share one more thing about this language thing, which is that I met a woman who is Japanese by birth and lived in this country. She moved to Los Angeles. And she said that she and her friends love to hear people speaking English, meaning American English. And I thought, well, it's not that pretty a language. How can you say that? <laughs> and she said, it sounds beautiful to us. And one of the things that we love about it, you have so many different words. And so she said, oftentimes in Japanese, we have to say the same thing three times because there are fewer words for certain things. So we say it three different ways to get the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have all these intricate specific words and you just say it and then you're done. I thought, well, this is interesting. I've never heard anybody say they love listening to my language. Right, <laughs> right. So Eric, you've opened up so many topics here. I could talk with you forever, but I'm gonna kind of let our listeners go and I'm gonna say thank you so much for being such an important part of this. And let me make sure that everybody knows how to find you in their Never Cousin podcast. First of all, go to Twitter, at Never Cousin podcast. It's, and at, also, Never, it's at Never Cousin pod. Um, yeah, that's uh, oh, in order to okay. make you it a smaller what? name. You're right. That's good. So it's Never Cousin pod. When you get to the page, it'll say Never Cousin podcast up, up above, but then below yes. the, actual, the actual Twitter handle how fancy is that? Twitter yeah, handle you said Never that right. Pod. <laughs> <laughs> Never Coos and Pod. And then you can go to the podcast, which is on iTunes, and that is the Never Coos and Podcast. We'll find you. And let me spell it. So N-E-V-E-R-K-U-S-E-N. And you'll find it. And um, you've got your most recent uh, episodes up there. And then people can listen to the excitement of the past. Once they get into it, they'll want to go right back to the beginning and hear all this history because... <laughs> Uh, they'll clearly hear that firsthand from, from you and your gang. So thank you so much, Eric, for being here with me today. It's been really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Diane. I have loved the wide ranging conversation we've had today. And uh, yeah, so I, um, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to continue this conversation maybe offline at some point. Um, and uh, I, thank you. It's been a pleasure and an absolute great way to uh, open up a, a weekend, a Saturday morning. Lovely. How perfect to be talking about sports on a weekend. So, and then archaeology, because archaeology has never stops. It's 24-7. So, everybody who's with us today, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time around. Thank you for being with us on Wow Whispering. In each episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links so you can learn more. We are pleased today to be featuring Paralympics. How do we spell that? P-A-R-A-L-Y-M-P-I-C-S. And what it is, is a set of games. Began in Rome in 1960 and featured 400 athletes from 23 countries. And in 1976, Sweden staged the first Paralympic Winter Games. The Games are now the second biggest sporting event in the world. And by the way, if you want to find out more beyond this conversation right here, go to Paralympic.org or go to Facebook to Paralympics or on Twitter at Paralympics. And again, that's P-A-R-A-L-Y-M-P-I-C-S. Now, it was not until after World War II that this idea was widely introduced of sport for athletes who had an impairment 
or that was piggybacking on what began as the first sport clubs for the deaf in existence in Berlin in 1888. So in 1944, at the request of the British government, Dr. Ludwig Gutmann opened a spinal injury center at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Great Britain. And in time, rehabilitation sport evolved further to recreational sport and then to competitive sport. On the 29th of July in 1948, the day of the opening ceremony of the London 1948 Olympic Games, Dr. Goodman organized the first competition for wheelchair athletes, which he named the Stoke Mandeville Games. It was a milestone in Paralympics history. They involved 16 injured servicemen and women who took part in archery. And in 1952, Dutch ex-servicemen joined the movement and the international Stoke Mandeville Games were founded. These later became the Paralympic Games in Rome. Since then, they've taken place every four years, and in 1976, the first Winter Games in Paralympics history were held in Sweden. And now both Summer and Winter Games include a Paralympics opening ceremony and closing ceremony. And today, the International Paralympic Committee, the global governing body of the movement, keeps it growing and attracting so much interest and so much excitement about the opportunity for everyone to participate in sports. Thank you. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.